This week's podcast is sponsored by the book, Glory Lost and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. It's Delta's inspirational turnaround story, written by the editors of Airline Weekly. Lively and informative, just like this podcast. Available in hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and audiobook formats. Hop on Amazon.com and search Delta Book. Today we're going to start the show talking about two airlines going seemingly in different directions. Not too long ago, WestJet was the younger, nimble, single-aisle airline routinely besting its rival Air Canada, which was the stodgy legacy carrier oftentimes unprofitable. But things can change fast in this industry, and Air Canada has come a long way. It's gallivanting all over the world with 787s. Cargo revenues are rising, passenger revenues are rising, and in the historically very weak first quarter of 2018, Air Canada managed to almost break even despite some terrible winter weather. That airline must be feeling good. Meanwhile, over at WestJet, Seth, how are they feeling? Yeah, 5% uh, first quarter operating margin. Uh, That was better than Air Canada for the quarter, but that 5% compares with 18% 18% as recently as 2015, going very much in the wrong direction. So are we witnessing a changing of the pecking order in Canada? I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and joining me is a man also prone to gallivanting, Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We'll start the show in Canada. We'll also check in on Emirates, who seems to be gaining some traction. And Europe's big three airlines reported Q1 earnings, and they were, well, unsurprising. Plus, we'll discuss IAG's quest for Norwegian. If you are on a quest for information on airline business, finance, and strategy, well, then you're in the right place. It's the Airline Weekly Lounge. joining us. So Air Canada posted some lackluster results in Q1, but while it posted a fractionally negative profit, it improved its year-over-year margins. That's despite a 25% increase in fuel expenditures. Seth, what is working for Air Canada? Yeah, Jason, there are airlines that celebrate losing money in, in their most off-peak quarter, as long as it's not very much money. And Air Canada is, you know, although they might not say they're pleased with those kinds of results, happy uh, to have a result that was just about break even. Uh, the demand environment is is just excellent, uh, especially premium demand, sixth freedom traffic. So these are routes connecting to other countries, typically for them, People flying from the U.S. especially, but other points south, connecting in Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver onto Europe or Asia did very well. I mentioned premium. Their business class revenue was up 14%. Transatlantic unit revenues, uh, they, of course, in a joint venture with United uh, and the Lufthansa Group Airlines. Those revenues up 13%. And even Asia, you know, which has been a, a problem in recent years, Japan and South Korea uh, doing very well. China is still difficult. Brazil, much better. Cargo revenues. This is something we've seen in a lot of airlines around the world, uh, up 14%. So just a, a lot going right for Air Canada, even in the face of, of higher fuel costs, which, of course, are, are, are problematic for most airlines. You mentioned Air Canada's negative Q1 margin. 
They have what we call seasonal swing disorder in that the airline makes a lot of money in the third quarter and very little in the first quarter. They say they want to change it, but other airlines are affected by this as well. Is this really a problem? At the end of the year, if you make all your money in just a couple of quarters, what does it matter? No, that that's the most important thing of all. Uh, and, and there are, I mean, look, Ryanair, uh, which is often the world's most profitable airline on an annual basis, doesn't make much money at all in, in the first quarter. That is just the nature of certain airline markets. But you know, airlines hate to see all of or a, a substantial part of their gains wiped out in the low season. There are routes, I mean, long haul routes, especially where, you know, all the money you make in the summer, a lot of it can 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 go away in, in you know, a few bad weeks in February. So airlines are always looking for ways to, to pair those those off peak uh, losses. Uh, it's not easy to do in an industry that is to a large extent a, a fixed cost industry. You know, it, uh, you take big penalties when you fly less. Airlines, we've talked about it on the show in the past, have have generally in recent years, a lot of major airlines been scheduling more seasonally. But, you know, that, that too has its issues. And yeah, there are places where you're just not going to make a lot of money no matter what you do uh, at, at certain times of the year. Um, so I, I guess, you know, the answer is, you know, kind of yes and yes in the sense that, sure, the most important thing of all is how much money you make all year uh, and not how you make it. But on the other hand, you know, does it make sense to try to address the off-peak uh, losses or, or at least the, the, the weak positive margins and in the case of, of uh, airlines that do make just a little money? Uh, sure, they're, they're right to do that. Now, while WestJet made some money in Q1, unlike Air Canada, it usually does. But this year, it made significantly less than in, re- than in recent years. And as you mentioned in the intro, it's exhibiting a downward trend. How serious is this? Well, yeah. Look, I I, I mentioned that in the intro, right? That that five percent margin compared to eighteen percent a few years ago. That's that's not good. Um, and in terms of uh, now, now again, remember context in terms of the first quarter here is that that five percent is a lot better than Air Canada's first quarter margin. But Air Canada is the far more seasonal airline. So then go back to what uh, I said a minute ago. You know, most important thing of all. Uh, as, as as you guessed, is you know how are you doing all year? And I actually just did the up to the minute math to see. Okay, has has after after you know WestJet's further decline for the first quarter this year and Air Canada's improvement compared to a, the first quarter a year earlier has uh, Air Canada finally caught WestJet on a, a on an annual basis for the you know the most recent twelve months that we have. And the answer is not quite, but they're getting really close. Um, for the past couple of years, it's they've been like within a point. Uh, and so, if you go back just these twelve most recent months, that you know that year, Air Canada is at exactly nine percent for an operating margin, and WestJet is at eight point five percent. So, you know, it would only take another couple quarters of of WestJet doing worse and Air Canada doing better, or at least not declining by as much as WestJet, for Air Canada to. Uh, in fact, be able to to catch WestJet on on, on, an, on an annual basis. Yeah, an, an airline that at points uh, in in its uh, two decade existence has been one of the more WestJet. I'm talking about one of the more profitable airlines uh, in the world. Uh, definitely mired now in uh, you know for for its own history at least uh, mediocrity. Even if these are still margins that. A number of airlines around the world would would, would love to have the eight point five percent. I mentioned. Look, there 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 are airlines that you know we've talked about in positive terms because of their improvements that still 
aren't reporting 8.5% in annual margins. We posed this question in Airline Weekly this week. Is WestJet becoming the next version Australia, becoming too complex and too ambitious for its own good? Now, we posed it rhetorically, but let me put the question to you, Seth. Are they? Yeah. So I guess another way to, to, to say it is, you know, is is are they accepting all of this cost and complexity without the corresponding revenue to show for it, right? Um, that's basically what happened at Virgin Australia. Uh, you know, they did all these things that all seemed really exciting, but you know, that you really put pressure on yourself as an airline when you when you do all of that, uh, that the revenue better be there because the costs are definitely there. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're making a bet that you're going to cover it. And then some uh, with, with revenue didn't happen for Virgin Australia. And so far anyway, you know, hasn't happened with WestJet. You know, and, and WestJet, I mean, you know, in terms of airlines doing different things, it's not just kind of a black and white question. Should you try, should you try things or not? WestJet has done a lot uh, just in the past couple of years that's sort of outside their comfort zone uh, and has really become a somewhat different airline. Um, so, you know, when you look at Air Canada, for example, they have Rouge. You know, we've we've talked about it in the past. You know, low cost units of 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 uh, legacy airlines don't typically do well. They say Rouge is doing well. They don't break out the financials. So so there's 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 no way to know. But what I know is that that's sort of uh, of sort of questionable things that you can do as an airline. That's the one big thing they've done. Whereas WestJet's done several things. And Rouge, I mean, basically is a just a lower cost platform. You know, it's 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 labor savings. As these things go, it's a relatively conservative way of of uh, of doing that. You know, WestJet is doing turboprop flying. So they've gone small. They've gone big with wide bodies. You know, they started off with a few seven six sevens. You know, kind of low risk way of doing it. Some cheap old planes um, that you can you know you can just kind of park them when demand's low and you're not pay, you know, paying by the month a whole lot of money for a big expensive plane. But then they went to Dreamliners and now they're doing swoop this ultra low cost carrier and so that's that's three big things right there three big questionable things that are you know kind of a big percentage of of of, of the airline and of course they'll tell you individually that all the things are, are you know are doing fine but when the airline's overall margins are are under pressure I mean something is bringing them down it's reasonable to to guess that it's not the old things that were just sort of always working you know, just just the you know connecting Big population centers in Canada or between U.S. and Canada, with uh, you know, with with lower cost capacity than Air Canada could can offer because WestJet is still the uh, the lower cost airline. So yeah, you know, it, 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 there are um, reasons for concern. It does seem like the more they do, the less money they make. Uh, you can understand why they've felt the need to sort of do something. You know, they they are in a in a in a not huge market. Where there's this threat of new competitors, you know, feeling like they need growth opportunities, so they they feel like, well, you can't just do nothing. But sometimes doing something is worse than doing nothing at all. Uh, it, it's 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 possible for that to be the case, and and it's uh, in fact possibly what's happening at WestJet. Oil prices are rising, and that's generally a bad thing for airlines. But the Canadian carriers do get a consolation prize from rising oil prices, don't they? Yeah, they do just like Arabian Gulf Airlines do. Uh, you know, just like United Airlines does at its Houston hub, at least where the you know, there's big oil business. It, it high oil prices, high jet fuel prices can be offset 
by strong revenues in places where you have uh, a lot of oil sector business. Uh, and that's certainly the case for Air Canada, WestJet, WestJet especially. You know, they are uh, headquartered in Calgary, a big presence in, in Alberta, which is which is Canada's um, uh, big oil producing province. And so, uh, you know, they feel like it's, it's helpful. In fact, our in Airline Weekly, in the newsletter every week, Jason, as you know, we run our it's sort of a quote of the week. We call it Verbulence. Uh, this week's Verbulence was WestJet's CFO, uh, Harry Tallery is his name, saying, I'm probably the only airline CFO that loves high jet fuel prices, uh, continues, because that usually means the underlying price of oil is high, which means the province of Alberta, what I just said, has a terrifically performing economy. Now, again, uh, you know, our high oil price is actually good for WestJet. Well, you know, their margins have been slipping. So so that's, uh, you know, a lot's going on there. So it's hard to say what's driving what, but uh, certainly tough to say that that uh, this environment has been uh, overall a good thing for WestJet. But we can at least say that, yes, they, they the, the, when, when you have oil uh, sector revenue exposure, that does mitigate uh, the the impact of higher jet fuel prices, you know, in, in a way that's not the case for airlines that don't have that exposure, where you know expensive oil is 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 almost entirely a bad thing. One interesting thing about Air Canada, they're going to bring back an in-house frequent flyer program. How can that be when they sold theirs off years ago? Yeah, Aeroplan, uh, the, the the giant independent. Uh, Canadian frequent flyer program, which has been Air Canada's program for well over a decade now. Um, you know, look, they spun it off at, at, at airlines when they when airlines sell their frequent flyer programs. It's usually out of distress. It's usually not uh, just because they think it's a good idea. Um, it's usually because they need cash, and you can get a lot of cash uh, doing that. In fact, because. Because of that transaction, uh, which was sort of the first huge one like it, uh, you know, others around the world became more enticing for for investors. I mean, Aer- Aeroplan for for a very long time was was the far more profitable company between it and the airline itself. But uh, look, the contract was uh, was for a certain number of years, and Air Canada has the right starting in 2020 to launch its own program again, and they're going to do that. They you know just seem to. Although they recognize the fact that they needed to sell when they did, they seem to have to regret having lost control of their loyalty program. Uh, you know, the data is powerful, and uh, just just the ability to leverage the program in certain ways that you can't entirely do when it's not an in-house program. They are bringing it back in-house, obviously to the detriment of uh, Aeroplan. Uh, they're not they're not the only airline that's done that. Copa, among sort of notable airlines, is another that uh, in its case has already launched its in-house program. In its case, its loyalty program wasn't uh, an outside independent one. It actually used United's Mileage Plus program as as its uh, external program. I have another question about frequent flyer programs. Uh, we mentioned in Airline Weekly a few weeks ago that there's been signs that the profitability of loyalty programs is plateauing. What signs were we talking about? Yeah, it's it's, it's been subtle, but uh, there's enough of it that you know where there's smoke, uh, you know maybe some fire. Uh, Want to give credit to, to Gary Leff, who uh, among other things has has a blog. It's called View from the Wing, and he writes about these kinds of things. And he noticed in some filings, uh, some SEC filings, uh, that airlines were noting declines in the sale of miles to partners. Uh, so they don't break it out necessarily. You don't necessarily know whether it's you know fewer credit card miles or miles sold to hotels and other. But yeah, the credit cards are are the biggest deals when you have a uh, you know a, a co-branded credit card with with your 
with an airline's logo on it alongside the uh, the bank's logo. You know, those are the biggest source of revenue generally for these um these uh, these programs. And uh, so basically, uh, you know, United has said that its uh, credit card signups were lagging. Gary noticed this uh, disclosure by by American in terms of, uh, as I said, the the sale of miles. Um, also a uh, a comment in a in a filing that uh, one of the risks of of their programs is that uh, other kinds of rewards, credit cards that aren't associated just with one airline's frequent flyer programs. Um, so like, you know, American Express has membership rewards where you can transfer its points just into various programs, uh, that that's a significant risk. They seem to be pressuring airline programs. Um, and yeah, just other signs. I mean, I, I got an email. I have, among other cards, I have this the American Airlines Platinum City card and I got an email from them that, you know, all of a sudden they were just unilaterally adding some some new benefit to, to the card, you know, sending a, a annually a a $100 flight discount uh, voucher if you spend a certain amount, $20,000 on the card annually. And and some other benefits like that, double miles if you use the card in a restaurant or at a a, a gasoline station. Um, And, and, you know, that too, if they're doing that, it's probably because they're feeling um, some pressure in terms of card signups or, you know, people giving up their cards. Hard to say why exactly, but, you know, there are people out in sort of the, the frequent flyer community who have been saying, you know, these airlines, they're, they keep devaluing these programs. And uh, sooner or later, people are just going to stop chasing the miles to the same extent that they've done if they don't feel like the miles are worth as much. Now, I should say a separate question is whether that is a bad thing on a net basis for airlines. You know, if, if, if the programs are a little less profitable, but the reason for that is that they're selling a lot more, uh, you know, first class seats rather than giving them away as upgrades and, and those kinds of things. You know, it, it's hard to say how it nets out. But yeah, this thing that had seemed like this uh, sort of this ever growing revenue source and, and these programs that had been really the, the, the golden goose for these airlines at one point in the case of US airlines, the only profitable thing about those airlines back when uh, when, when they were really struggling a decade or more ago. Uh, yeah, signs um, that it might have plateaued, if not perhaps uh, being in, in, in a slight decline for a few of these carriers. Okay. It's been a rough few years for Emirates. Uh, the Gulf economies have been hindered by low oil prices and a strong U.S. dollar suppressed revenues for the airline. And in the fiscal year that ended in March 2017, Emirates reported a 3% operating profit margin. But in the year that just ended in March 2018, the airline reported a 4% margin. So things are moving in the right direction? Well, by definition, I guess, yeah, right? They <laughs> went from 3% to 4%. That's, that's good. Uh, they, did, they did it on, uh, on an 11% increase in revenue during the winter half, those, those last six months of, of, of the year, uh, outpacing a 9% increase in costs uh, on just a 2% increase in ASK capacity. So this is no longer a rapidly growing airline. Cargo revenues, remember we said Air Canada's were up, what did I say, 14% or something? You know, 17% for uh, Emirates. You hear that over and over again uh, from airlines. Um, the U.S. market for Emirates has stabilized. You know, after the 
the the visa ban um, initially uh, for those countries and you know that obviously are very important to uh, to Emirates uh, in in its in its home region. That's been a good thing. Um, Europe, which is uh, which is even more important than the U.S. for Emirates, has a lot more capacity there. It's just closer economic recovery accelerated there. Obviously, that helped uh, that helped Emirates and and Emirates is another one of those airlines. Uh, we talked about the Canadian airlines certainly when oil prices spike. Yeah, Emirates doesn't like paying more for jet fuel, but there is absolutely an offsetting benefit uh, in terms of local economies. Dubai itself, Emirates is, you know, sort of very narrowly defined home economy is not a big oil producer, but all over the region, of course, there's, there's oil revenue and, and Emirates gets a ton of connecting traffic from, uh, uh, from, from, those, from those places. And perhaps further helping Emirates, its rival airlines seem to have struggled even more during the downturn. Is that safe to say? And could Emirates end up coming out of this comparatively stronger in the long term? Yeah, that's that's safe to say. I mean, look, Qatar can't fly to a lot of places in, in the region, including including to, to, to Dubai and, and the UAE uh, itself. So that obviously is, is very unhelpful for them. Etihad clearly struggling. Uh, it'll be interesting here to see if one of these days we, we really get a picture of their finances with, you know, Audited financial results, which they're now, you know, apparently going to produce as part of the uh, deal between uh, the U.S. and, and the UAE. Uh, a lot of controversy about what that deal really, uh, you know, if the deal really changes anything per se. But anyway, Etihad is part of it is is uh, going to be more transparent. All by all accounts and appearances, those numbers are are going to be very ugly unless uh, things change for them. Um, so sure, I think that's that's probably helpful for Emirates. There's a trade-off. You know, desperate competitors can actually be difficult competitors to uh, to to compete against. Also, you know, you, you just have all kinds of sort of capacity and low fares in, in in the marketplace. So it's it's sometimes hard to say whether you'd rather a strong competitor or a weak competitor. But um, you know, there's still always that possibility out there. Uh, although yeah, Emirates doesn't doesn't seem to indicate that anything's imminent or, or that is something I think a whole lot about. But the, the possibility that Emirates uh, would would merge with Etihad or at least merge some part of of, of its business with Etihad, you know, it seems to Makes some sense, but uh, you know these are, to a large degree, political questions rather than uh, um, rather than financial ones. But um, you know, at some point, if the government of Abu Dhabi doesn't want to keep subsidizing what are you know the, the almost certainly big losses that Etihad, you know, if it can't turn things around organically, then you know, then that's then that's always out there. Europe's big three reported earnings, and it's all sort of more of the same. IAG, parent company of British Airways, Iberia, Vueling, Aer Lingus, and now Level posted a 6% operating margin in Q1, which is really quite good for the quarter. Lufthansa was well off that pace, but at least healthy, posting a near break-even quarter. And then there's Air France KLM. The airline posted a negative 2% margin. They again faced more labor unrest. They lost their CEO. Their girlfriend walked out. The dog died. <laughs> Where to begin? Let's begin with Air France KLM. The impact from strikes and the threat of strikes is, can it be overstated? Well, I don't know how you overstate $370 million in impact, which is what they say uh, the strikes have cost them. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, they're well over a billion dollars at this point over the past 
uh, four years in strike impact. That explains a lot of the differential between them and at least Lufthansa. You know, IAG is kind of in a, in a, in a separate category. You know, Lufthansa, which consistently does somewhat better than Air France, but is not in a different universe. Um, yeah, you can you can attribute uh, a lot of that differential to the fact that um, Air France KLM, uh, you know, although Lufthansa, you know, if you just sort of look at headlines, you'll see over the years, certainly they've had their 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 share of, of uh, labor battles that they're not in the same realm, you know, compared to what Air France uh, KLM has faced. It's it's just you know, hard to make a lot of money as a company when you're giving up that kind of money in, in uh, strike costs. Things are indeed sunnier at Lufthansa. The airline group basically posted a big fat zero in Q1, but what a welcome zero that was. It marked Lufthansa's best Q1 in a decade. Yeah, they're one of those airlines that, uh, you know, if they can break even in their worst quarter, um, they, they can have a, a, a decent year. And what's what's interesting about Lufthansa, by the way, is is that overall group figure uh, really belies just these these vastly different figures at the different operating units. Um, so Lufthansa group, of course, is I'm going to get in trouble if I try to name them all, right? Because so many units, but uh, you know, Lufthansa, Swiss, Austrian, uh, Brussels Airlines, which you know, the Eurowings is is uh, is sort of on that platform and so forth. So Swiss earned a nine percent positive nine percent margin in, in the first quarter, and Swiss is always the best part of of, of the group. You know, we we, we said this in early weekly. Um, you know, that's better than Ryanair uh, a lot of times. Um, so so it's. Yeah, let's see. Ryanair's most recent. Yeah, it was it was what six percent uh, in last year's first quarter. So, um, you know, Swiss just absolutely outstanding by uh, by almost any standard. Austrian was the one at the other end of the spectrum, a negative seventeen percent margin. So, what's that? Nearly you know, said the twenty six percent gap between the two, twenty six point gap between the two. You know, add it all up, and and this is an airline that uh, at least based on that that first quarter result, which as you said. You know the best in a decade, an airline that uh, seems to be moving uh, in the right right direction. Never an airline group that earns outstanding profits, but but one that's well glad not to be Air France KLM. That's for sure. And just like it's been for a number of quarters now, IAG is playing at a whole nother level. They posted a positive six percent margin. I read in Airline Weekly that the airline group seems to be benefiting from Monarch's departure. Yeah, Monarch, especially because um, IAG ended up with uh, Monarch's slots at Gatwick. Uh, so benefiting very directly, not only from less competition there, but from the slots as well. Benefiting, too, from from uh, Air Berlin being gone, one less competitor. I mean, in that case, it was other airlines that ended up with more of the, the slots, um, you know, EasyJet at, at, at uh, Berlin Teagle, for example. Um, but yeah, 6%. I mean, look, American Airlines, which is IAG's joint venture partner, of course, earned 6% also during the first quarter. You know, nobody was was dancing around and celebrating that. The difference is again the seasonality. Um, you know, when IAG starts the year, the very seasonal market with a six percent, uh, that's a really good sign f- for the year. And they're one also, by the way, that you know, big differences in the performance of their different airline groups, of their different airline units. But in their case, it, it's a difference in seasonality between the units. So you know. Aer Lingus, for example, actually has a real rough first quarter. They they did this time again. They always do. Um, but Aer Lingus is, is, is an excellent performer overall. It's just an airline that always, uh, as an independent airline, and now this continues as, as a part of the group, just, just, just a, a very, very seasonal airline, um, but one that IAG 
is uh, is very much glad to have. Iberia improved. Uh, they actually earned a small profit for the uh, for the quarter. And um, and British Airways itself, nearly a double-digit operating margin for the very much off-peak uh, first quarter. So just just excellent results at the individual units, and uh, no surprise, added up to a, a great result at the at the, the group level. And lastly, staying with IAG, where are we on their courtship of Norwegian? Well, they still very much want Norwegian. They say they only want it though um, if it if it's consensual. So I guess you know for now no means no you know but but they're still pursuing it um so not at this point not hostile you know you would think that if you were norwegian uh looking at your prospect uh you would take very seriously the opportunity to 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 sell the airline at a premium uh to where it trades right now you know norwegian says they're not interested you know they said the IAG offers undervalued the airline so you know whether they're just trying to get more or whether they just don't really want to sell at almost any price uh, is is uh, is hard to say. Seems like a great opportunity to cash out to the extent that they can and uh, save some face, but they uh, don't seem to uh, agree with that yet. And for us, it's a great opportunity to end the show. <laughs> we'll leave it right there. Thanks for listening. And if you like this episode, subscribe to the Airline Weekly Lounge in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Share it with your colleagues. You can also subscribe at airlineweekly.com. Thanks again for listening. 